You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I want to do something real quick from a programming standpoint before we get into the topic for today. Many of you have been with us for a while know that back in, boy, I think it was 2016, we started a second podcast stream. Our podcast used to just be this podcast, the Strong Towns podcast, released uh, once a week, generally on Thursdays. And with uh, Rachel Quitnow joining the staff, we started a second podcast stream. The second stream we've been calling the Week Ahead podcast. It's evolved and changed over time. But the idea was that it would be kind of a step back, an internal look at some of the things we were doing here at Strong Town, stuff was going on. It's kind of like an an insider's kind of thing. With Rachel departing uh, in the middle of this month to uh, return to graduate school, actually, great opportunity for her. We're making some changes here to the podcast format. Look in the future for this podcast, which uh, we're still going to continue to call the Strong Towns Podcast. There might be a a little bit of changes to it. Look for this to come out, I think, earlier in the week. I I think we've kind of settled now on Mondays as being the release date. We're going to be piloting at least one and I think two other podcast streams on this channel here. So you'll get those kind of like a preliminary format, but we're going to be migrating them to a a second stream. I'm not going to make any official announcements on those yet, although I promise you they will be interesting, they will be fun, and they will uh, involve me and other people on the staff here who have some talent for this. So just wanted to let all you podcast subscribers know that that is coming uh, as part of what we do. And, And I'm just going to say, you know, thank you to all of our members who have made this possible. Uh, we're now up to around 2,400 members. I can't describe to you how important you are to us and, and to what we do and to the uh, the capacity that we've been able to build and sustain here uh, for making all this possible. So thank you. And if you are a listener and not a member, you can go anytime to strongtowns.org, sign up uh, to support this movement and help us spread this message to more and more places. A couple of weeks ago, I had... I believe actually one of our members, but certainly someone I've, I've corresponded with before. I have a little back and forth dialogue on Twitter about sprawl repair. His comment to me actually was, I'm baffled by you not enthusiastically supporting sprawl repair. To me, this is his words, to me, sprawl repair equals strong towns, or he might have said strong towns equals sprawl repair. If you're not sprawl repair, what are you? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I'm citing that all from the the tweetosphere by memory. But you get the you get the sense. The idea here was that, hey, I'm following you guys and I've been doing this for a while. And if you guys aren't sprawl repair, then I'm very confused. <sighs> We've written about this a couple of times on the site and a good friend of mine named Kevin Klinkenberg has actually written a couple of really good articles on this. And, and one of them is the one that prompted this dialogue back and forth. I'm going to try to say this in my own way and describe this in my own language. I wrote some notes down here, but I don't have anything like, you know, written down. This is going to be a little bit off the, the top of my head. So 
but I think it's an important distinction. And let me just start with the idea of what sprawl repair is. Because you've heard me say the word sprawl like six times now, and that's probably the the first six times you've heard me in well, like eight years of podcasting ever use the word sprawl. I, I wrote an article that got passed around a lot, I think back in 2016, just called Sprawl is Not the Problem. And you don't hear me using the word sprawl because I just have grown to not only not like it, but not find it to be very descriptive of anything that I'm trying to deal with. A lot of times when people talk about sprawl, what they're talking about is something that is like auto-centric development out on the edge of the city into the, into the hinterland. It's where all those suburban people live, right? Those exurban people live. They live in sprawl. You know, for a long time, I found that to be kind of an annoying description. Part of it was that as an engineer, I built this stuff. I mean, I, you know, kind of had my early career in a sense building sprawl and maybe kind of developed a, a little bit of anxiety or animosity towards, you know, the derogative term of sprawl. But, but I think certainly when I started to delve into Strong Town's concepts, you know, like the very early days, it was apparent to me that like sprawl, the way that most people like visualize it and describe it was, was not the problem that we were dealing with at all. In fact, I went to a presentation at an American Planning Association conference of all places back in like 2002 or 2003. It was fantastic. The presentation was a debate between two people over whether sprawl was a problem or not. And I found the person who argued that it wasn't incredibly compelling. He put up slide after slide after slide that showed how civilizations for all time have grown horizontally out from a center. They have had suburbs. They have had places that you would describe as sprawl, as places you know out on the edge. Now, obviously, until the last 70 years, they weren't auto-oriented. But even like streetcar suburbs were, in a sense, sprawl. They were out on the edge. Now... A lot of people don't associate that kind of development pattern with sprawl, but the question is like, why? Why? Is it just an aesthetic? Is it just the fact that one is based on the automobile and the other one is slightly less so? Is that it? Because when you start to break that down, what you find is that, I mean, I, I look at the urban center that I live right now today, and it has every like negative characteristic that people associate with the aesthetics of sprawl. We have wide streets with fast traffic. We have turning radiuses that are way too wide and allow for traffic to, to fly around the corners. We've taken space away from people and made our neighborhoods less walkable. We've made them single-use kind of places, not mixed-use kind of places. We have done things like orient the buildings now to where they'll have garages fronting the streets instead of in the alleys. We will have the type of architecture that is commonly found in suburbs. We see that throughout the neighborhoods in my community. If this isn't sprawl, which it's not because it's not out on the edge, what is it? You know, it looks like it. It looks like the same thing. It feels like the same thing. It certainly has the same kind of nefarious effect on the community. What I started to grasp, what I started to realize is that more than anything, this is a development pattern. It's a development pattern that we find out in areas that would be called suburban, out in areas that would be called exurban. Certainly throughout rural areas, we see this kind of pattern. And in urban areas, we see it too. The Taco John's example that I've given many, many times is a great example of this. We took an urban block 
uh, with eight or 10 different properties. Those properties were oriented towards the street. They were brought up and fronted along the street. They had their main entrance along the sidewalk of the street. We tore that down and we replaced it with one drive-through restaurant, big parking lot now out front, big auto-oriented sign designed to, to capture people driving by. It's got two drive-through lanes. The whole deal is now a different kind of development, even though it is in the middle of an urban area. When we look at sprawl repair, and there's some beautiful books on this. Kalina, and I'm going to screw up her last name, I did in the podcast that I had her on a, f- a few weeks ago. I used to say Takieva, but she has a more beautiful way of saying it, and I screwed up. Ellen Dunham Jones, both of them have put together just fantastic books about how to take properties that have been built in this pattern, and I'm just going to call it an auto-oriented pattern, uh, development that has been built in this pattern, and reconfigure it for a walkable urban, more human scale kind of pattern. And I have to say, as someone who's not an architect and who does not have this gift of being able to draw like this and be able to express the thoughts in my head (laughs) in a beautiful rendering. I mean, I, I don't have that skill and ability. I cannot draw. I'm not very good at it. For someone who lacks that skill, I am just astounded by the beauty of the stuff and the imagination and the creativity and the ingenuity of the stuff that I have seen them put together. Both of these books that I've seen are visually stunning. And when I examine them closely, I'm deeply inspired by the level of creativity that they have in taking space. I, there was one in particular that was a house configured like my brother's house. I have a brother who lives in a... Uh, for those of you in Minnesota, he lives in Rogers, which I, I think you'd call like a third ring suburb of the Twin Cities metropolitan area here in Minnesota. You might even call it exurban, although I think a third ring suburb is probably the right way to put it. It's way the heck out there. But he lives in one of these standard suburban subdivisions, you know, these auto-oriented kind of places where <laughs> every house is beige. Uh, the streets are all curvy and disorienting. Everything ends in these random cul-de-sacs. You can't find your way in or out. It's crazily wide streets with you know wide boulevard areas with no trees. <laughs> I love my brother. He's very happy there. I'm I'm happy for him because he's living his life. But the place just like is mind-boggling to me, and I I, I feel you know. Often I feel bad for him when I go there. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I could not live here. He enjoys it. Him and his wife love it. They have got two kids. I think it's great. I look at it as a total disaster, not just today, but like a pending long-term financial catastrophe. That being said, here's this book and I'm, I'm sitting there with Galena and I'm looking at it with her and it has a house that looks almost exactly like my brother's place, which you can imagine this place, you know, back maybe 80 feet from the edge of the roadway, big suburban yard out front, everything pushed way back, a big two and a half car attached garage. The house itself is a one story with like a split level then behind the garage. So it's got that kind of ranch kind of look, but yet, you know, the split entry kind of feel to the back you know, the deck on the back, all that kind of stuff is standard, like suburban home. You could get in a third ring suburb here in, in central Minnesota, or really any third ring suburb around the country. Here's this diagram that she had put together that shows this thing converted into not just like a triplex or a quad unit. I can't remember what one it was. That wasn't the brilliant part of it. But the brilliant part of it was how 
through the reimagination of this place, they took the kind of the hull of it and reconfigured it so that it oriented the street in a better way. There was an addition out the front. That addition, you know, went through what was like the parking area and the driveway. It changed the way the building was kind of oriented. So it had less of a ranch kind of feel and more of a, an urban setting kind of feel. And when I looked at this, I just said it in my mind, like I could never have come up with this. I could look at this thing for hours and hours and hours. I would never have come up with this design, but I looked at it and I'm like, that's, that's really brilliant. That's really, really smart. I'm impressed. I'm, I'm like deeply impressed. I also think it's kind of silly. <laughs> I also find it kind of ridiculous. And I think this is the disappointment that was being expressed to me is like, you know, if strong towns is not sprawl repair, then what is it? I find it brilliant. I'm not going to suggest that it's not. I just find it kind of silly and impractical. I think to get to why, you have to start with what we here at Strong Towns see as the problem. A lot of people describe the problem as this horizontal development pattern. They describe it as an aesthetic. Boy, the suburbs are just, you know, mind-numbing. Uh, everything's disorienting. You can't find your way around. There's no sense of place. And you're almost talking here of like an, an architectural form. I described my brother's house. Like I said, I'll say it again. They like it. Um, he enjoys it. Uh, you know, a lot of people do. I'm not trying to disparage people who do. I think it's financially very fragile. I'm glad that I don't live there. He lives there. He likes it. But a lot of people describe this pattern as disorienting, as isolating, as dangerous, and I can see all those arguments. I can, I can see all of that. I also see all, a lot of that in urban areas, in urban areas that have been kind of turned over to this same style of development pattern. So, you know, I don't think that that is necessarily an edge of town versus center of town kind of thing. You can't really call one sprawl without calling the other sprawl. And people generally don't call the neighborhoods of Minneapolis that have been reconfigured with a gas station and a drive through Arby's to be sprawl, even though to me, it has the exact same characteristics as sprawl. So I found that not to be like very descriptive. One of the other ways that people describe this is a density metric in Galena's drawing. Uh, you took a single family home and you made it into a triplex or a quad unit. So now all of a sudden, magically, you've in increased the density. I get like the allure of looking at it that way, particularly if you are a zoner, you know, someone who is tasked with implementing zoning codes. Again, I find this to be rather silly, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why. We can go to Santa Ana, California one of the most dense cities in the entire you know, United States. And vast stretches of that density look very suburban. It looks very suburban because you have a lot of poor families who are living in traditional family settings. And by traditional family settings, I don't mean Ozzy and Harriet of the 1950s. I mean like pre-depression families. Mom, dad, kids, cousin, aunt, uncle, grandpa, and grandma, all in one house. The way humans have lived for thousands and thousands of years throughout all of history, right? Up until modern times, this is what a house was. Incredible levels of density, but a development pattern that is very similar to, you know, what people would label as sprawl. If you didn't know what was going on inside the building, if you didn't know the level of density and you just took a snapshot of one place and a snapshot of another, you would label them both sprawl, even though they have very different density characteristics. I saw this on the outskirts of Portland and the outskirts of Vancouver. 
both of these places, known for their planning, known for their progressive way of assembling neighborhoods, have just miles and miles and miles of mindless, kind of mind-numbing sprawl, you know, for lack of a better word. Yet when you, you dissect it, it has density that is way, way higher uh, than what you find in some places where, that we call urban. I'm not sold on the idea that this is a density metric. This gets down to what I see as the, the problem and the difference. And I've had some people argue with me on this, and they, they don't like my representation of this. And I'm fine with that. I'm not saying that to be a Strong Towns member or to be part of the Strong Towns movement, you must agree with me on all things. This is one that I'm, I'm willing to discuss, and, and we'll have a conversation. When I look at these places, be they in an urban neighborhood or be they in a rural or suburban kind of setting— what I see as the fundamental flaw or the fundamental characteristic, the, the problem that we're trying to solve is one of kind of, we can say, evolution over time, one of, of change. Pre-depression development was built incrementally on a continuum of improvement. I've shown this many times. Uh, it's a central part of the curbside chat. I show a, a, an image of my hometown back in 1870, the very first iteration. And my city is young enough where there was actually a photo shot of it, you know, in its original incarnation. Cities that are older than mine generally don't have that because there, there weren't, you know, people taking pictures back then. Um, but mine is young enough where in 1870, someone set a camera down and took a photo of what this street looked like. And it was the same kind of street that you would have seen, not only in my Midwestern town here in central Minnesota, but you would have seen, you know, decades earlier in Minneapolis or St. Louis or Dallas. You would have seen uh, centuries earlier in places like Boston and Manhattan and Charleston and Savannah and what have you. The idea that cities started, which is these little bets, these little kind of shacks thrown up, kind of some hopes and some dreams and some visions of what the future would be. And while many of these places would fail, and when they failed, people lost a little bit of money, they were little bets, you moved on and salvaged what you could. Some of these places, all those complex, messy variables that make a city successful, you know, is the right people in the right place at the right time, those variables come together and the city starts to grow. And when they grow, what you see is that these places grow incrementally. They'll grow incrementally up, they'll grow incrementally out, and the buildings themselves will become incrementally more intense and more ornate. And so in the pre-Depression development pattern, not just of North America, but of the world, we can go to civilizations all over the world, and this is what that early APA presentation I was referring to earlier discussed too or noted, what you see is a very similar approach to development. Now, the architectural styles are different. The cultural icons are different. The building materials are different. The culture is different. But you see a very similar pattern of development, one of incremental growth, where cities have little stuff going out on the edge. In the core, they've got a, a center that is ever-intensifying. As that continues, you get neighborhoods that start to form and create their own centers and their own intensification. These get connected together. You see this happening in cities big, cities small. A city can go from little pop-up shacks like my town in 1870 to the towering skyscrapers of a place like New York City, Manhattan, or even the like thick, thick density 
and just that kind of intensity of a city like Milan or or Paris or London, you know, and places lack the the towers, uh, the modern kind of skyscrapers, but you you just have this very kind of thick carpet of uh, of impressive buildings with uh, with a lot of people crammed into a, a very small space. This is the style of development, this building incrementally on a continuum of improvement uh, that has persisted for thousands and thousands of years up to modern times. In modern times, what we see post-World War II is that our development pattern made a not-so-subtle shift. It was maybe subtle to our sensibilities because I think it really ties into a lot of human psychological characteristics that you know we are, are wired to kind of accept and promote. But nonetheless, it was a very radical change where instead of building things incrementally on a continuum of improvement, we began to build things in large blocks to a finished state. We began to build things in large blocks and we began to build them finished. When they were completed, when we built them, they were done. They were absolutely completed. There was no mindset that anything else would ever happen to them. You could essentially put them under glass, put them under wrap, come back in in 60 years and it would be the same thing. There was no anticipation of change or evolution at all. This is the way that we build today. And and is a chicken and the egg argument whether zoning came first or this mentality came first? I, I don't think it really matters. They were maybe came up simultaneously. But you can see this embodied in our regulations. In a neighborhood like my brother's, you go out and build single family homes because that's what the land is zoned. It's zoned for single family homes. And it's fully developed now, as they would say, it's built out. And I use air quotes for that because it's an absurd notion that it is part of this folly. Um, but the idea is that, you know, it's zoned for single family homes. There's single family homes built on every lot now. If we came back in 250 years, there would be a neighborhood of single family homes there exactly as there is today. There would be no change, no difference. That is not financially viable. And not only is it not financially viable, like just at its face, you know, we've done the analyses and we've shown that like a neighborhood like my brother's has far more long-term costs associated with it than it has the revenue potential. Like cities go broke when they build this way. Um, They get a near-term advantage in cash. They exchange uh, that for this long-term liability. When the liability starts to come due, they make good on it by taking on debt they fool themselves into thinking that it's cash flow debt when it's actually insolvency. They're just buying time. Ultimately, the debt service gets to be too much and they start letting things go, not maintaining roads, putting off critical maintenance, doing things like, you know, closing libraries and parks and, and you know, laying off police and firefighters and all, all the things that cities do to try to make ends meet for a short period of time. Well, they, they put off uh, the really serious decline and ultimately collapse. This is an insolvent pattern of development, but I want to point out one thing kind of related to this, and that is that if we go back and look through history, a lot of what you'd call suburban development of the past, the stuff out on the edge, the, the little bets, the little increment out there that you saw, that in many ways wasn't really financially viable either. Now, nowhere like it is today, and if you go back and listen to, uh, there's a podcast we did a, a, a long time ago about the party analogy. And I may have to do the party analogy just to have this make sense. Yeah, let me do that real quick. 
So this comes from my good friend, Ian Rasmussen, who's also on our board of directors, has been for the last three plus years. Just a, a genius guy. Ian told me this once and it stuck with me. Ian's the kind of guy who likes to throw a good party, likes to go to a good party. He lives in New York, lives the good life. Ian said, if you go to a party and everybody who comes to the party brings more food and brings more liquor than they themselves eat and drink, everybody does this. What do you do to your party? Well, you open the doors wide open. Everybody who shows up just makes the party better. Everybody who shows up just makes the party more wonderful. Invite everybody in. Everybody come. Let's just make this the biggest party possible. But what if you go to a party and everybody who shows up drinks more and eats more than they themselves bring? Well, all of a sudden, this is becoming a terrible party. Everybody who shows up makes the party worse. You slam the door. You don't let anybody else in. The more people we let in, this party just gets bad quickly. Stop, stop. And the analogy is, is meant to kind of reflect our development pattern. It's very easy to see the bad party in our current development pattern. I look at like my brother's neighborhood again, and uh, everybody's got a single family home now. The more people who show up, if we started to convert that whole thing to duplexes, uh, the more people that show up, how are things going to get better for anybody there? Anybody who's there now, how, how is their party going to be made any better? It's not. It's not. Because now you have more congestion during rush hour. You've got this hierarchical road network that shoves everyone into the same place at the same time. Well, all of a sudden now you turn every house into a duplex. You got twice as many people. You got twice as much congestion at the same time. You got twice as many people using the parks. The parks are already built. They're already there. Yeah, they can't afford to maintain them, but they don't know that yet. I mean, that's not part of their, their deal right now. They're still in that first kind of life cycle of the place. You know, there's going to be more people parking on the street. There's going to be more people using the sidewalks. There's going to be more people having fire calls and police calls. There's going to be higher costs there. Everything goes up and nothing gets really any better for anyone. It's a bad party. It's a bad party. Now look at pre-depression American cities. And I'll take my little town here. The neighborhood that I live in right now, North Brainerd, was the first neighborhood built in the city right north of the railroad stop in the downtown. You had the core downtown and you had North Brainerd. North Brainerd has a big square in the middle, all the uh, houses around what is now a big park. People would walk from this neighborhood to the downtown and back and forth, get on the train if they went somewhere. Otherwise, they'd just be you know, in the downtown and in the, in the core neighborhood. Out on the edge of town, where the Taco John's is today, where the Old and Blighted Block is today, where the the neighborhood next to that, you know, Northeast Brainerd, this also happened in South Brainerd. Uh, these were the kind of expansions of the city. When those neighborhoods were built, what you saw was you saw a lot of very modest development. People would go in in these plats, some of them speculators, some of them you know, people new to town who were just looking for like the cheap lot they could afford, they would go out and they would build very tiny little places because these neighborhoods kind of had their growth stunted. Within two decades after they were platted out, uh, they weren't fully developed. And then we had the new, you know, the depression, World War II, and then this new experiment that just kind of skipped right over them. You can go in and, and kind of, from an archaeological almost standpoint, you can, you can discern and you can pull out and see the first increment of building throughout these neighborhoods, little small places like 600 square foot homes. Understand what a 600 square foot home is. Today, it's like, this, this, is, this is absurd. Nobody would build a 600 square foot home today. Back then, it was like, that's how you started. Because you didn't have a paved street. You didn't have sewer and water. 
you maybe had police and fire protection if you could get it out there, but it was going to be like a bucket brigade for fire. I mean, you didn't have pipe running out to where you're at. You were building like a little tiny shack out on the edge of town. And what you were doing is a couple of things. First of all, it was largely like all you could afford. Like I moved to this town, I'm poor. I maybe work at the mill or I have odd jobs around town or, you know, whatever I do. This is my little thing to get started. And it's a very small house. It would have been very cramped, very tight. But the idea would be, as I become a little bit more successful, maybe save a little bit of money, uh, maybe, you know, every now and then get a little bit uh, that I can put aside, I can go and and add on to this place. So my 600 square foot place can become an 800 square foot place. And then maybe someday I could put on a second story or I can do another addition off the side or what have you. I've got the ability to grow incrementally on my lot. And as you go through these neighborhoods, these kind of first additions to the the regular city, um, what you see is a a lot of stuff in this state. Uh, You'll see the original house and then you'll see the front edition, the second story edition and the side edition. And it looks a little haphazard. It looks a little, uh, you know, disjointed in some places, but yet it's all has kind of the same architectural style. It orients towards the street because these were walkable neighborhoods. They line up with the houses that are adjacent to them because that's how you built value in a neighborhood like this. There's very much like you can see people trying to essentially start with nothing and make something out of it incrementally. Here's the other thing that was magic about this. And, and this is, you know, gets back to the, the notion of a good party. In this neighborhood, when you were building your little shack out on the edge of town, and you could think of this as a tar paper shack if you want. I mean, I, I, these probably would not meet the current building code, but the idea was not to build something that was, you know, great and grand. It was build something that could get started that could amount to something else. What happened was, as you did this and other people did this, that the neighborhood itself would start to grow, would start to create a certain amount of critical mass. You're the first person out there. Then all of a sudden, there's someone across the street from you. Then there's another person up the block from you. And pretty soon, there's three or four more. And pretty soon, you're building a whole like group of people who are all kind of in the same place, incrementally making their place a little bit better. And what happens? Well, now you've got a good party. Because the more people that show up, what happens? The more stuff you can do wow, we got enough people on this block. We can have a bucket brigade. So if someone's house catches on fire, we can all come and show up and put it out. Oh my gosh, we have enough people here. You know what we can do? We can run the water system out to this place. Now we got enough people and enough wealth out here uh, where we can afford to run the sewer out or, or maybe put in sidewalks or pave the street. All this stuff happened incrementally as part of like a good party. So from a city standpoint, from the city, and understand that when I'm talking about the city here, I'm talking about the local governance, like the collection of us that gets together and says, here's what we're going to do collectively. The city would say, you know, we're not going to provide a road out there. We're not going to maintain a road or we're not going to let the, you know, the pipe run out there until we have enough tax base out there to actually justify it. Until we have enough users and people who connect to actually do it because, you know, we can maybe subsidize it a little bit up front as part of this growth strategy, but the, you know, we've got to have some assurances that there's enough connections out there, enough people out there, enough critical mass. And most importantly, we've got to make sure that the good party continues, 
that as the underlying land values build up, that there will be redevelopment potential and people will not only add on to buildings, but as buildings go into decline, uh, they can be torn down and rebuilt into something more substantial. That incremental development process that has you start with a shack and end up with Manhattan, that that is actually allowed to occur throughout these neighborhoods. This is what we've lost. This is what we've lost. And there's a, there's a couple of ways to look at this. I'm going to start with the what we lost is the ability to start with nothing and end up with something. Uh, when you look at incremental development, I intentionally mentioned the tar paper shack. I've not been to South America. I've not been to some of the far desperate suburbs of like Paris, but I have read about them and I have talked to people who have been there and I've seen them and I realize, and, and I'm, I'm going to acknowledge this, I realize that living conditions are not always great. I'm not trying to nostalgize the tar paper shack. And I'm not trying to wish on large swaths of the American population, the tar paper shack. But understand what happens when you get rid of the tar paper shack, when you say you can't start with nothing. That means you have to start with something in order to get started. And what that means is that most people can never get started. They wind up in like a just above subsistence kind of way, renting from other people, never owning, never building your own stuff, never reaping the rewards of your labor yourself. You used to have the ability to start with nothing. And as a bunch of people started with nothing, able to collectively build that incrementally over time into something. Essentially, that was the magic formula for all of human history, for all places. The ability to start with nothing and over time, I'm not suggesting, you know, go from pauper to Bill Gates, right? But I'm suggesting that in most societies throughout all of history, you can find places where people could start with nothing and build up to something. I'm, I'll give you an example. I was touring the ruins of Pompeii. I come across like the quintessential building form. This thing couldn't have been more than, I was going to say, 200 square feet, 300 square feet. I mean, it was tiny. It was like, I mean, I have tree houses, like as a kid, bigger than this. Um, but what you saw was like the quintessential building type. It was a residence in the back with a shop in the front. Basically think of like two rooms. And the shop in the front in this case was like their version of fast food. It was like a place with like two pots and you would have had a little bit of like a fire going underneath there, whatever, to keep things warm. And uh, you had the ability to sell stuff to people walking by on the street. And you can imagine a family in this instance where the husband, and I don't mean to be uh, sexist in a modern sense. I think, you know, we have a different sense of how this would work, but back in these days, the husband would go out to the edge of town and try to get uh, labor out in the field, maybe picking fruit or figs, or I, I don't know what the heck you would do, olives, whatever, uh, around Pompeii. And you would try to get you know labor out that day or breaking rocks or doing whatever you did. And the wife would stay home and she would be able to kind of simultaneously keep her eye on the kids in the, in the house, in the back, while working the storefront in the front. As a family unit, this is like incredibly resilient. If the husband doesn't do well that day, you've got the shop to fall back on. If the shop doesn't do that well, you've got the husband's labor out on the edge to, to fall back on. If they both do really well, you can start to build some savings. You, you see how this works? 
I'm not trying to nostalgize it. I'm not trying to say that this is what I aspire to for everyone because this is this is hard. This is hard work. Um, but what it did in a good party kind of way is it allowed people to start with nothing and end up with something. As you look at our neighborhoods today, we have a very high cost of entry. We can talk about this in a future podcast. There's all kinds of reasons why, you know, building code is part of this. There's a whole bunch of things. Not all of them bad, right? Like we don't want people living in tar paper shacks. Like I get it. But what we've done, let me give you another like clear example of this. When we build a subdivision today, like my brother's, we don't allow it to be built without sewer and water and sidewalks and roads and all the stuff. You got to build the parks. You got to build all the stuff. You essentially have to put everything into your party that anybody would ever want. And you essentially create the conditions of the bad party. If double the number of people move to my brother's neighborhood, it's not going to do anything to improve the quality of life of that neighborhood. Nothing. And it will do a lot to detract from it because now essentially like he's got to share everything. It's the bad party. Like double the people are drinking the booze, double the people are eating the hors d'oeuvres. Like it's, it's a bad party now. I have two big problems with spa repair, but the first one is that it doesn't solve this bad party problem. It doesn't solve the fundamental incremental problem of our places that cities cannot be built in large blocks to a finished state and be financially stable over time. They cannot. They must be built incrementally. And now that they have been built to a finished state, they must be allowed to evolve incrementally. Now, part of that may be by sprawl repair. And I'm not saying this has no practical use. I think it has very practical uses. And, and like I said, I found the drawings to be inspirational. I found them to be genius. I found the adaptive use of space to be really, really quite good. But this brings me to the other like underlying assumption that really bothers me. And that is the notion that the capital expenditures necessary to do these things can be justified. I look at like my brother's place and when that goes bad, which my eye starts to see it a little bit already now, I think this neighborhood's probably a generation old, maybe 20, 25 years old. I can see it starting around the edges. It will be a while yet. They still have the debt phase and, you know, we'll see how fast they get through that. You know, we'll see the trajectory. They, they certainly aren't being buoyed by uh, huge amounts of development and huge property value appreciations the way they were a, a decade and a half ago. So we'll see how long this lasts, how long it takes. But I look at like that neighborhood and I say, okay, if we were going to go in and save it through sprawl repair, like if we were going to go through and, and, and fix my brother's house, let's just say the block that he lives on, you know, it's not a block, it's a dead-end cul-de-sac. The, the dead-end cul-de-sac that my brother lives on, what, what would we do? I find it unfathomable the amount of capital that that would take to fix just that little bit of area. So in other words, you have people who are in a bad party, they're not necessarily inclined to have more people come and eat their hors d'oeuvres and drink their liquor, right? They've already got it. They've got the road. They've got the street. They've got the pipe. They've got the park. Why do they want a whole bunch more people there? So right off the bat, you have like essentially like an unwilling audience here for this. And second of all, where in this unwilling audience are you going to come up with all the money to make this happen? Where? 
Like, where's that money going to come from? Why would people move to this place? It's a third ring suburb. It's in the middle of nowhere. Why would you move to a quad unit on a dead end cul-de-sac in the middle of nowhere in a neighborhood that's not, you know, it's three miles from the Walmart. It's miles and miles from anything that you would need to go to. It's a residential development in the middle of a a former cornfield. Like, why would you move there? Why? Now, if you're in Tyson's Corner, right? If you're outside of Washington, D.C. and you're in a fast-growing suburb and, uh, you know, you've got all this money kind of slushing around in the place and people are just dying. If you're on the outskirts of Vancouver or Portland and you just kind of try to find cheap, you know, land wherever you can. So there's some like demand in a place like that. But I'm telling you, like, those are anomalies. Those are anomalies. You can go to the, the vast swath of North America and almost every place that you would describe as sprawl is not a place that people are going to move to in numbers and with capital to actually make a conversion like this happen. Not not at any type of scale that comes anywhere near to addressing the problem. In other words, if sprawl repair is supposed to be an answer to decline, it's an absurd answer to decline because it depends on a complete revolutionary shift in human nature for, for no good reason. I mean, I, I don't, humans are not wired this way. Like, I don't know why they would shift their mind about this. But second, huge amounts of capital in a place that is declining. Like, there's no way that anyone in my brother's neighborhood considers converting into a duplex while their properties are appreciating in value, their property taxes are low, their streets maintained and their parks maintained. No one's going to consider that. The only time they're ever going to consider, the only time it could possibly ever become a viable alternative is when the place is in such steep decline that like accepting some new people into your party is like the way you're going to staunch the bleeding. And at that point, who the heck is going to want to move there? Who's going to want to move there? It doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense. And so for the wide swath of America, this is not a strategy that is scalable. This is not a strategy that's applicable. The wide swath of suburban development in North America is going to go into terminal decline. And I think one of really three different things is going to happen to it. Either one... Let me start with the most generous approach first. It's going to be redeveloped and transformed into coherent neighborhoods. I think this is a small percentage of the land area. I mean, 2%. I think this is very few places, I think, pull this one off. Because to pull this one off, you need a whole bunch of variables to come together. You need the public will. You need the political will. uh, You need the capital. Uh, you need the design flexibility. You need a whole bunch of things to come about in order to make this happen. But I won't rule it out. I think it could happen. And I think in these cases, in these instances, the knowledge and the foresight and the ingenuity from sprawl repair is going to help that situation. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make that situation better. They're going to be able to use that and take the, the cul-de-sac and, and convert those into quad units and attach it to the adjacent strip mall and build that out so that it's a nice little neighborhood center. You're going to have things like that. And I think for the most part, those things will happen in places with like ridiculous amounts of capital. If you're on the edge of Boston, if you're on the edge of New York, if you're on the edge of San Francisco or Washington, D.C., those things are 
not universally viable. I mean, I still think you're going to pick and choose your places and your neighborhoods. Um, but those are strategies that that may stand a chance, particularly in the in the short term, when capital is easy to come by and the demand is there. I think, though, the most likely thing that's going to happen to these suburban places, to these you know pure suburbs, the sprawl, you know, the suburban sprawl. I I think the most likely thing that's going to happen is what I would just call like a concentration of poverty and a densification without really any architectural change. Santa Ana is a, is a good example of this. So we have a place that is kind of very suburban in nature. And instead of a single family home being, you know, a single family, the way that we define it today in America, it's going to become a single family in the way that we've defined it throughout history. So mom, dad, kids, grandpa and grandma, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbor up the street who's running hard times, uh, one of the rooms rented out uh, as a boarding house, you know, this kind of thing. And I can see that happening, not every place, but I can see that happening in more and more neighborhoods where, you know, these 3,000 square foot houses just become silly. I mean, you can have three 1,000 square foot houses in the same kind of space. And people are really smart. Uh, they've got a lot of ingenuity. They can figure this out. They can make it work. One of the ways to stop decline or to slow decline and to make these places work is to allow them to evolve and kind of reconfigure themselves in this way. When we talk about neighborhoods being allowed to breathe and change and evolve, this is what we're talking about. Let me go through the third one, and then I'll talk about this evolutionary process. The, the third thing that I think has happened, is going to happen, is that a lot of these places will be, and I, I wrote a whole article about this, it's in my first book, it's just going to be salvaged. We're going to go into these places and we're going to salvage the, uh, the appliances and the light fixtures and the copper wire and the copper tubing. And we're going to figure out how to salvage carpet and sheetrock to the degree that we can and, and plywood and, and two by fours, you know, to the degree that we can, we will salvage material from these places. I think that will become a business over the next couple of decades. Like I, I think that that will become a thing that people do either that or it's just going to rot and fall in, which the, you know, the, that may sound crazy to you, but there's huge precedent for that. I mean, we see that happening all over the place. If our inner cities were built the way our suburbs are built today, if our inner cities were built with the same structural acuity and approach that our big box stores and our strip malls and our drive through restaurants are built today, we would have no inner cities left. They would, they would all have rotted away from neglect. The fact that they still are there and there's still buildings there and there's still places there is because... A hundred years ago, we used to build things very differently and they were, they, they were going to last longer. Today, we don't build in that way. If the Taco John's, if people walked away from the Taco John's tomorrow and they boarded it up, within five years, it's on the verge of collapse. Within 10 years, it's collapsed. It's got a tree growing up from the inside of it. It's, these buildings are not built to last without intense maintenance. They're just not. So we will either salvage these things or they'll just disappear. They'll just go away. They'll just fall apart. One of the problems that, that keeps me from being an advocate of sprawl repair and keeps me from being like the person who says, like, this is the answer, is that I think it still embodies this notion of building all at once to a finished state. 
you know, we've got the, the big box store that's now closed. So what we're going to do is we're going to go out there with, with millions of dollars of capital. Generally, we'll go to the city and say, you know, you've got a dead site here, uh, but for some big tax subsidy or big, you know, handout, uh, this thing's going to sit empty. You don't want that. So uh, give us the money and we'll go in and develop it. And uh, we'll build something. And uh, again, we'll build it all at once and we'll build it to a finished state. And if our vision is good, it will last a, a couple decades or more. If our vision is not good, uh, because it's, it's not an adaptable kind of thing, it's not a thing that evolves and changes, it's, it's not a thing that was built uh, in an evolutionary kind of way. If our vision isn't good, it will not last very long and we'll uh, you know, maybe struggle to make the payments or be back trying to get another grant or another subsidy to you know, readapt it into something else to finish state. I don't think we can do this at scale, and I don't think we do this successfully. I think we have a long track record now of not building viable places with this kind of a mentality. When we say, and I draw the ire from all sides with this, the neighborhood preservationists hate it. Sometimes these people are called NIMBYs. They want nothing to change. They want their neighborhood locked in glass. We, we've got a historic character here, Chuck. We can't change it. And the people who want to build like condo towers and apartment buildings everywhere to solve the density problem uh, and the affordable housing problem, uh, they hate this too because, you know, you're not rising to the challenge, Chuck. Uh, when we say that every neighborhood in North America needs to be able to build to the next increment of intensity, what we're really calling for is the ability of places to evolve the ability of places to change and adapt and to find a viable solution for themselves. This is our alternative to sprawl repair. This is our alternative to suburban decline. This is our alternative to urban stagnation. Evolution, the idea of change, incremental change across a broad area over a long period of time. Every neighborhood of single-family homes today should be able to become a neighborhood of duplexes. Just by right, there shouldn't be any long permitting process. There shouldn't be any neighborhood conflict. It should just be allowed to happen. If people want this to, to take place on their property, uh, if they think they can you know, convert their garage into a living unit and rent it out, if they think they could go and, and subdivide their home into two different units and condominiumize them and, and sell one off and use that money to pay off their mortgage and then live uh, essentially mortgage-free. There's an endless number of permutations, some of them out of the sprawl repair manuals, by the way, for making use of a piece of property. If we allow these to happen, what we will find is that the neighborhoods that have the ingredients will adapt and change and survive and thrive. I talked earlier about uh, the little row of pop-up shacks, the first iteration of development. Uh, and I said, when you get the right people in the right place at the right time, it's more than just building form. It's more than just the right zoning code. It's more than the right infrastructure in place. It's, 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 it's a complex mix of things. It's got to be the right people in the right place at the right time, you get one of those complex variables off and, and it might not work. We don't know what neighborhoods are gonna work. We don't know what neighborhoods to go in and save. 
We don't know what neighborhoods to pour huge amounts of capital into. We think we know. You put Chuck Marone out there, put a gun to my head and say, you figure it out. I'll, I'll go out and do my best. But we know that in the, uh, you know, the complex messiness that is uh, cities, uh, that is city bureaucracies and governments and decision makers and public policy debates and what have you, we're going to get this wrong more often than not if we use a, a top-down, orderly but dumb approach. If we go in and we allow neighborhoods to evolve, we allow neighborhoods to change, we allow neighborhoods to adapt to stress and to self-identify as strong, successful places. And then we go out and we incrementally support those places to get to the next level of intensity. We're always helping them nudge them along. We, we don't want them to, to jump from single family home to six story condo. We have like no way to adapt to that. There's, there's no, uh, it's not a natural adaptation. But if we can help them evolve to the next increment and the next increment and the next increment, it won't be quick. It won't be efficient. I've had the incremental developers get on my case and say, well, Chuck, you can't do this. You know, you build a duplex and you can't tear it down and build a quad. I know, I know that. I know that. I, I realize that. We have a lot of single family homes that need to be turned into duplexes and they're going to sit there for a while as duplexes while people use them and while neighborhoods thicken up and while things figure themselves out. And then when they figure themselves out and get to a certain level where the underlying land values are increasing and the properties themselves, the buildings start to age and go into decline and need to be rebuilt, there's going to be a natural mechanism there to renew them. The next increment of intensity. It's not sprawl repair. While I love the sprawl repair people, I think they're brilliant. I think they're still stuck in the paradigm of building things to a finished state. The idea that, you know, we have a vision, here's what that vision should be, and we're going to go out and build it because we know better. I think when we humble ourselves to understand that we don't know better, that our places actually need to be able to breathe, to change, to evolve to manifest themselves differently over time, um, that we can allow that to start to happen and see the fruits of it come to fruition. I wish we had never embarked on this huge suburban experiment, right? I, I wish we had never built the stuff we built. I, I wish we had shown more restraint in the years when it felt like we had plenty and could just solve every problem by throwing more money at it. I wish that we had had more wisdom and more restraint. We didn't. And so we're stuck with this landscape. And I realize the frustration of that. Like I realize how we'd love to just change it overnight into something else, but we can't. And even if we could, we'd be falling into the same trap that got us here. We have to allow these places to evolve. We have to allow them to change. We have to allow them to find their way. And that's going to look different in the city of Minneapolis than it is in the city of Rogers, the third ring suburb. It's going to look different in the city of Brainerd, in North Brainerd, than it is in South Brainerd, than it is in Northeast Brainerd. It's going to look different in the center of San Francisco than the edge of San Francisco. It's going to look different in Vancouver and Portland and New York. It's going to look different in Dallas and St. Louis and, and the, you know, the subdivisions all over the Florida Turnpike. It's going to look different in all those places, and it should, because those are different places. Don't be afraid to embrace the complexity. Don't be afraid to say you don't know. Don't be afraid to allow things to adapt and change. 
and to allow people to try things and to learn from it. I think we're at a, a point in time where it's very seductive to think that like there's a magic answer that I can find in the sprawl repair book. Strong towns equals sprawl repair. Like what else are you? <laughs> many, many things. We have to figure this out. And the only way we figure it out is to try a whole bunch of different things and build on success and allow failure to fail. If we can do that, if we can start to uh, embody that mentality, which is a, I've called it humility in the past. I think it is, it is a certain level of humility. It's not humility in the sense that, you know, we grovel. It's a confidence. I'm fine with confidence. But it's humility in the sense that, like, I don't know the answer. Here's how I'm going to figure it out. It's the humility of a scientist, right? You know, like, I'm trying to explore something. I'm trying to figure something out. How do I go about figuring it out? That's what we got to do. For those of you that wish Strong Towns equaled sprawl repair, I'm sorry that it doesn't, but I think it equals something even better. And I think sprawl repair can be part of it. And there are certainly places where it's applicable. It's just not the answer. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Tune in. We're going to be coming at you with some more podcasts here soon. In the meantime, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity for becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.